one thing I would say that that whole process taught me was that uh, not everyone is going to share your your vision, your goals, your dream, that they're simply just not going to believe in you. And that is okay. Not everyone is going to believe in what you do. Find people that, that do. Less stress, more time, more money. Welcome to the Cash Flow Contractor interview. Martin, did you get the flurries last night? I did. They were pretty. Yeah. The biggest snowflakes. Oh, I've seen in a I long thought time. you meant in my stomach. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty well. It was raining and started snowing and now it's a bright sunny day, gonna be fifty degrees. So there you go. Yeah. Amazing. Oklahoma where you get five seasons and five hours. In a day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um yeah, I'm sure all of this weather has our guest uh really on edge this time of year with the type of work he's got. But uh, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. How are you handling up with all the weather this time of year for your jobs? Uh, it's it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Yeah. You know, some contractors have the, uh, the seasonal aspect, but they're able to get indoors and do finish out and stuff like that. But for you, everything's outside. Uh, tell us a little about your company. Uh, well, uh, my company is Vista Pools, and uh, as you said, the weather right now is definitely a challenge. We're we don't really have a, an off season, you know. We just Oklahoma is unique in that regard that uh, the winters aren't typically bad enough to not work. But then you run into some stretches like this uh, this last couple of weeks here, which you know pretty much brings everything to a standstill. Yeah, but it, honestly, it hasn't been that bad of a winter. Um, it could have been worse. I no, the like. winter. Yeah. The winter has been fine. It's, yeah. it's right now it's the ground conditions. It, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, interesting. So how, how long have you been in business? Tell us a little bit how you got started. Yeah. So, uh, Vista pools is our sixth year. Um, it really just kind of got started by, um, happenstance, I guess you could say my background, primarily, uh, project management, um, estimating, uh, purchasing of raw materials. And, uh, it, it started with a friend who was already in the industry and it just kind of a partnership had come together. Okay. That's one of our big topics, partnerships. Uh, Martin right. was able to share a little bit about this with me before we started. Um, but yeah, tell me about your partnership. Uh, how you got like, what was the, was a handshake agreement? For the most part, it was a handshake agreement. Yeah. So yeah. How did that get started? Tell me about like what your vision was for the company together. I think therein lies the problem with uh, partnerships. <laughs> I think, uh, I, I think, I think partnerships kind of, um, they're, they're born, they're, they're incubated in this, uh, space of uh, sort of wonderment. Um, it's a, uh, a skewed perception of reality though. I think not everyone can share the same dream. I think it takes some um, uh, very unique relationships to be on exactly the same page, which, which is what's necessary for a successful partnership. Yeah. You sound like you're talking from experience. Was that what you guys had? Uh, like who is the, what were your roles in the company as partners? 
that's the problem. They were never defined. <laughs> they were right, Martin. They were never defined up front. It was just um, uh, being each other's uh, cheerleader, you know. So hmm. you can only cheer so much without having actual results. Yeah. Let me uh, just jump in real quickly and say in a really good partnership agreement, not only will you have the same vision and be on the same page and the same clarity, but a partnership agreement should deal with things such as if one of you dies, if you decide to split up, if you need more money, who puts money in, what do you get for putting that money in, who ultimately makes the decision, can a partner borrow against the company and therefore obligate the partner unknowingly? Um, there are all these issues. So if you look at those, did you deal with them? No. I already know the answer. <laughs> but if you die, I'm, I'm just putting that out so people kind of have a mental checklist that a handshake isn't good enough. It's maybe good enough for today, but reality changes. Yeah. It, it just always does. True. There, there was a written uh, partnership agreement, uh, but honestly, it was minimal, just enough to satisfy the needs of the bank uh, to have accounts. Right. You know, and I, I want to go more like story time. And, you know, I'm assuming what probably happened. I could be completely wrong here. I don't know the full story. But for most partnerships, the way that I see it turning out is a couple of friends have known each other for a while. They may be in the same space or, you know, similar spaces. And they said, you know what, we should go out on our own. We can do this. Like they've got this, uh, this venture in mind and they want to, you know, accomplish it. A lot of times there's a little bit of, you know, theoretically, each person could probably go out on their own and be successful. Or at least one of the partners could go and do it themselves successfully. But there's that reassurance and comfort in having someone alongside you to do it with you. And then you go and you get started and it's pull up a Google search for a partnership agreement and buy it off of LegalZoom and go ahead and sign that thing and get your LLC formed and then you start running and it's a dream come true and a honeymoon phase. But anyways, I want to hear your side of that story. Am I anywhere in line or am I completely off base? No, you're, you're pretty well in line. And I think like anything, you know, you certainly wouldn't enter into something like that if you had any inkling uh, that there would be bumps down the road. You know, like you said, honeymoon phase, that's a, yeah. a perfect description of it. And um, uh, while the other partner is uh, just a, a terrific human being, um, personally, socially, all of those things, um, you just perfectly aligning with someone and having the same views and goals, uh, it's it's difficult. You know, in Pat... This is how I met Scott, helping to unwrap that, which we did over a period of time, which cost some money. Uh, but you have different skill sets. You want to talk about that? That's one of the main things. Mm -hmm. um, you have completely different skill sets, and one could be seen as speaking French and the other Portuguese. This, right? this is this is true. You know, and for communication and understanding. Yeah, and really, what um, what had brought the company to Martin for his expertise was. Uh, a very specific conversation um, that we had had, my, uh, the previous partner and I, and um, we had set a certain uh, financial goal for the company where we wanted to get, and one day we we hit it. You know, of course it was 
pushed a little bit by the uh, coronavirus demand and whatnot, but the specific conversation was, hey, where do we go from here? Do we want to uh, just sort of coast from here or do we want to dig in and really grow this thing and make it something that can stand on its own two legs and have, have value? And we agreed, let's, let's dig in, let's make it happen. And the, cons the conversation continued from there that while we certainly know how to do the work, we know how to get the work, we know how to do the work, we don't know how to grow a business. And we agreed to uh, search out someone that could help us with that. So that's, that's really how we got to Martin, not necessarily to unwind a partnership, if that makes sense. Right, but it became apparent pretty quickly that it needed to be cleaned up and that's where the division showed up correct yeah so my my background like i said uh, i've kind of always been a process-minded person and i think that's what uh, led me early in my uh, professional adult career into uh, project management which shortly thereafter led to um, quality systems management developing processes um, auditing against those processes, identifying uh, non-conforming products and materials, corrective and preventive actions. So, so to me, there's always a, a start and an end to everything, and it's not a lot of deviation. When there is a deviation, you have to uh, identify it, correct it, and prevent it. Yeah. I mean, so much of, of this is way easier if you get it lined out up front, and obviously you didn't. What were the biggest challenges for you because it wasn't lined out up front. Um, if, you're, if, we're if we have listeners out there that are thinking of starting a partnership that are in that honeymoon phase of a partnership, can you explain what the challenges are that you face that could arise? What should they be aware of? Well, that's, a, that's loaded, isn't it? That's loaded. It is loaded. Um, you know, I think without defined roles between partners, and I think part of the reason that roles aren't defined is so that everyone feels equal, like everyone can do everything. And in reality, that's just not the case. Um, and again, I don't want to be disparaging at all or anything like that. But starting out that way with no particularly defined roles, uh, everyone was doing everything. But it yeah. kind of made, it, made itself ever, evident, as Martin had alluded to, that there's different uh, skill sets came to light for each person. So a, a division of those responsibilities happened, but was never really discussed. And I think while some things may be more difficult and more uh, pertinent to the success of the business, others could really be done by someone with less than a partnership role. Yeah, it becomes very difficult when maybe one person's carrying a lot of the burden uh, and the other person's not necessarily not showing up, but they're just not doing equivalent tasks, not working instead of, as a leader, but more so working just as an, a low-level employee. That, that happens fairly often too, right? Um, how did you get out of this situation, Scott? Mm. Uh, Mr. Holland was <laughs> instrumental in that. Uh, yeah, it was probably one of the most difficult things um, that I've experienced. One thing I would say that that whole process taught me was that uh, not everyone is going to 
share your, your vision, your goals, your dream, that they're simply just not going to believe in you. And that is okay. Not everyone is going to believe in what you do. Find people that, that do. That's, it, does, it doesn't get easier than that. Once you make that thing very simple, very clear, do not include the people that don't believe in you. Include the ones that do. My, my wife will probably laugh at me for bringing this up, but, uh, you know, I enjoy watching uh, fighting, MMA fighting on TV. And there was a fighter last year. Yeah. And, you know, as they're doing all the, the pre-stuff and announcing the fighters, she was in her corner saying, I'm the best. I'm the best. I'm the best. And she went ahead and won the fight. It was a, it was a very difficult fight. And in the post-fight interview, they asked her about that, you know, that you kept saying that you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. And she said, I am the best. So with that sort of mindset mentality, her believing she's the best, there must be other people that also believe she was the best because she has a coach, she has training partners. Uh, they all worked with her because she believes she's the best. Now, I'm not saying that I'm the best or that our company is the best because we make mistakes, of course. Uh, but we are the best in that we, we don't leave a mistake. We own it. We're just, just honest with ourselves. Well, this is a lot because that's not, we're going to talk about that here in a minute, but that's not okay. how every company approaches it. And yeah. I know that this partnership that you had and the, the challenges of the past year or so uh, have not been easy. And I appreciate you know the information that you were able to share with us, but I think there's a lot of lessons that you've taken from this and it's going to you know, make you a way, way better business person because you do understand the value of vision, the value of having values for your company and having the right people on board with you, not just partners, but employees uh, mm -hmm. who's on your crew, who's on your team. So uh, really, really thankful for you sharing the information that you were able to. And for those listeners out there that are in a partnership, it's absolutely critical for you to outline things from the beginning, to have a clear vision, to have clearly defined roles. And just because someone's a good person doesn't mean that they're a good partner um, and not even a good business person. Um, and so you need to really di distinguish between those things early on because it will save you more than a headache, but a lot of money, a lot of stress and anxiety uh, down the road. Uh, but anyways, let's pivot. Let's talk about your company. So sure. uh, how, you, how long again did you say you've been in business? This is our sixth year. Sixth year. And a lot has changed since COVID. Like, let's even talk pre-COVID. What was building pools like for you? Well, I, I jokingly, uh, maybe too often, refer to us as a PCB, a pre-COVID builder. Um, but business, <laughs> business, business was fine. You know, as a young company, um, the goal was to never just set the world on fire and, you know, build a hundred pools in the first year, it was uh, intentionally a slow, steady burn approach. And uh, about how many pools were you doing a year? What was the average price of a pool at that time? Sure. I think the first year was uh, eight or nine pools. Um, one of them was a, a commercial remodel of a hotel pool. So it did have a, you know, okay. a large uh, invoice attached to it. And you know, from there, right. I just kind of kept going up and uh, last year was the biggest for us so far. Yeah. So pre-COVID, what was like, if I'm a homeowner and I 
when I get a pool, what's that starting entry level price on the most basic pool that you could you would build me? And are you just doing concrete pools? Or are you doing fiberglass? No. What do does it look like? Fiber, fiberglass and gunite, primarily fiberglass. Primarily fiberglass. So what is like my entry point pre-COVID of like getting a pool with you guys? Pre-COVID was probably in the $60,000, $65,000 range. Okay. So things have changed a lot since COVID. They, they have. Um, you know, we've got We've got eggflation going on out there. People can't get eggs for more than or less than seven dollars for a dozen. Uh, that's not the only industry. I think pools from from the contractors I've talked to, pools might be one of the most inflated. Just not because of not just because of supply uh, chain issues and inflation of prices on materials and labor, but also because demand is just like through the roof on the pools. Uh, side of things. So what's the entry point now if I want to build a new pool? My generic answer that I that I usually tell people is our average project is about 75,000. And maybe now it should be average more. Average project's about 75,000. Yeah, maybe now it should be 75, 80, but in that realm. The Let's talk about the demand side. What I mean, how many calls did you get during COVID about asking for a pool? I I couldn't count. I couldn't count. It was. <laughs> I definitely say that uh, during that time, you didn't have to work to get the work. Yeah, like if I'm a marketing guy and I called out, called you up and said, "Hey, I want to run some ads for you." What would you say? Uh, no, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm all right. Yeah, We're exactly, good. exactly. Yeah. Did you have any issues with customers wanting a pool and then like not being able to afford it? Did that ever happen to you guys? It, it happens. It does. But I think the consumers, there's so many resources out there um, to kind of start down that path of what what it all entails that most most consumers are pretty well educated by the time we get on the phone. Let's talk about with that demand, some people in the market noticed that people wanted pools. What did you start seeing? Uh, pop up overnight uh, everyone is a professional pool builder and while that's fine and and uh, you know there's more than one McDonald's Burger King Ron's Hamburger uh, you name it uh, everyone thought it was going to be really easy uh, the checks would just fall out of the sky and in many cases they did um, but with that comes some problems any stories that you have of like someone called you because someone bailed on a project? No, uh, quite severely. Um, I won't say the customer's name. I did. I did post it uh, sure. on on Facebook, but uh, there was a couple that had met us at one of our home shows, and they had decided, "Hey, we're going with Vista Pools, and that's our choice." And then over the weekend. They had talked to some other friends who knew someone who had used some uh, someone else. And so they decided kind of last minute to change gears and go with that, that contractor. Uh, you know, I'm sure the price was lower and well, several months went by and they called back and asked, Hey, could you, uh, could you come out and take a look at what we have going on here? And this is a, a beautiful property. They had spent nearly $100,000 on their pool, and uh, what they had there would never, ever become a viable pool. Wow. What did it end up costing them? 
to get everything fixed. Or I'm assuming they got it fixed. Oh, it, we, we tore it completely out. Wow, completely. so they just had to pay for a new pool. Yeah, we tore it completely out and started over. So not including the first, you know, 100000 I mean, they, they have a quarter million dollar project there, which, you know, should have been $100, $130,000. Crazy. And that's happening all the time. It's, it feels similar to like the roofing industry when there's a hailstorm in Oklahoma or somewhere where there's just all these roofing guys popping up overnight. I feel like that's kind of what happened. Don't you agree? Yeah, I think so. Demand is so high and... I think a lot of related outdoor industries decided um, that they would they would jump in that that pool game, and like I had mentioned, they they didn't really have to work to get the jobs, and so I think the money came very easily. Um, this got people a false sense of what the industry is, so that buy new trucks brand new excavator, brand new skid steers, brand new trailers. And which I'm sure we'll get into the market is changing now. And this has also caused for some of these guys who didn't focus on how to get the work or what their reputation would be going forward. It's caused them to slow down. And of course, payments still have to be made. So there's only two choices there. Yeah. Crazy. You know, um, I've had a number of pool companies over the years and I kind of have presuming their bid properly. Okay. So that they know their cost and they know how to bid a, a margin. Uh, a lot of times the margin that they bid does not show up on their profit and loss statement. In other words, they might bid with a 35% margin. And when they look at their books, they have a 10% margin. And over the years, I've kind of categorized that in the reason for that into two, uh, two areas. One is uh, mistakes and the other is concessions. Uh, mistakes being that you left the pool untarped and, the, and it rained and it collapsed the hole, you know, things like that, or things like broken pipe that get the decking poured over it and they didn't know it was poking and you gotta tear the decking out. Concessions are such things as the customer has the idea that this is a turnkey deal because that's what you or somebody told them well turnkey in in uh, the contractor's definition does not include moving the sewer line and the gas line which could cost ten thousand dollars but to the consumer it's a uh, no you said turnkey so there's a ten thousand dollar mistake perhaps depending on if you concede that point or not how has may, maybe you started out really well but how has your, your, how have your processes evolved so that you talk about that kind of thing in advance? How do you manage customer expectations? That's a simple way to put it. Yeah, that's a great question. So this will sound wrong, but it is correct for us. And that is that even though it is a process, we don't have a sales process. Uh, all of our initial inquiries, they really just start out as an information exchange. And our whole process from initial contact to a signed contract really just takes an educational track where we, we go over and review exactly how a project goes. Um, our contract is very clear on what is and is not included. And I think for the most part, 
99.9% of everything is covered in the contract. So it's really just kind of leading the, the customer through uh, the contract, educate about the process. And if that resonates with them and they like the way that we operate, then it becomes our work. Did your uh, contract start out really well fleshed out or have you been adding to it? That's one thing I've noticed. There have been a, a couple of it. As, as experience has shown you. Yeah. There have been a couple of additions, but not very much. Scott, what got you into processes so much into becoming such a process-driven person? Where did that start? You know, I, I have uh, had the opportunity, you know, to work with some uh, very professional people who I felt, um, you know, believed in what I could, what I could offer. I mean, you know, sometimes you get hired to do one, one job and maybe by lack of anyone else, you ever hear like, Hey, if you can do this step forward, but instead everyone else steps back. Well, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I wasn't smart enough to step back with everyone else. And, uh, <laughs> but that afforded me, uh, you know, the opportunity just to be given a chance. And, uh, I, I took to it. You know, I just, I don't, I, maybe it's genetic. I don't know. My, my father's the same way. Um, there's a start and an end to everything in my mind. Yeah, for sure. So we started lack of vision. You've had obviously kind of a, uh, a break point, I guess you could say inside of your business. And now it's just you running the company rather than a partnership. Well, what? I, I should give an yeah. update. I should give an update to that. And Martin knows. And uh, so during this process of uh, Martin helping with uh, the buyout, I said to my wife, who is absolutely a professional in her own right, uh, business development for a major organization here in Tulsa. And I asked her, I said, if this goes through, you have to help me. And so uh, she agreed. <laughs> She agreed, and it's been over a year now that um, she has been working full time in the business. And you know, frankly, we've wow. just had our absolute best year ever. That's great. So you you have two partnerships with your wife. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that's great. So what is uh, what's the vision now for the company? How have things changed since it's become you and your wife? What is your vision for Vista Pools, and where what's the path forward? The, the path forward is uh, just a steady trajectory. You know, uh, I think there's value in, in staying in your, your wheelhouse. Uh, I think if you, what is it uh, you call it, Martin? Is it the, the death spiral? Yeah, I, I had a note written down to bring that up, the contractor death spiral. Yeah, so we, we want to stay very far away from that. We want to stay in our lane. Um, we prefer to under commit over deliver. I know it's cliche, but, uh, uh, we're, we're comfortable where we are. We still, still are growing. Um, but we just keep it at a, a reasonable and manageable pace. Yeah. Mike, I'll let you, Scott, maybe define what the contractor death spiral is. Well, you're not living it. Other people are. So, uh, Martin, I know we've discussed before, you know, uh, our household, my wife and I, we were also uh, uh, Dave Ramsey followers. You know, we're pretty uh, conservative financially. I don't like to owe 
anyone, anything. Um, and so you get, it's see, uh, how should I say it? Everyone likes income. It's a great thing, but we could have a lot more checks coming in, but there's a lot that comes along with that. And that is a lot more juggling, bouncing back and forth, you know, to jobs, get a little bit started over here to appease that customer, get a little bit started over here to, you know, get that one. And, uh, I think you just get blinded by what the potential income is. And in that blindness, you do not see the, the commitment, the other side of it that has to be upheld. Right. I kind of define the contractor death spiral. I mean, our listeners will recognize it if they haven't lived it themselves. And that's where you have to collect a down payment on the next job in order to finish the last job. Oh, that's and uh, number number of reasons for that. First one could be losses. You're bidding improperly, so you're not generating enough money. The other is uh, dragging things out too long so that you don't make enough every month to cover your overhead, even though you might make a margin. Another reason might be because you're just looking at your bank account and all of a sudden you have $300,000 in there without really thinking, that's not my money. <laughs> Those are deposits. And then do, do things like you mentioned, go buy a new skid steer or go buy a new an F-350, you know, because it's really cool. Well, Martin, and pretty soon you're behind the eight ball. You were the one who uh, uh, previously, uh, after looking at some of our financials, said uh, you guys need to split up your accounts. And uh, as simple as that may sound, if that's not something that you, uh, if that's not in your background, you may not necessarily think of it, but you're absolutely right. Those customer deposits have to be absolutely separated from any operating expense uh, account, any any payroll, um, maybe even a tax uh, withholding account. But the customer deposits is for work that has not started. That's not money you've earned. And that is a very deceiving figure to have mixed in with your general ledger. Do you have any advice for people who are trapped in the contractor death spiral, um, how to get out. You know, I think uh, I'd have to default to uh, Mr. Dave Ramsey and and uh, make a figure out your snowball and just start start climbing out of it. I mean, I haven't been there, so. What, what can you just define for our listeners the snowball that they're not familiar with Dave Ramsey? Sure, Dave Ramsey. It, it applies to your personal life, but uh, you know the seven seven baby steps to, um, you know, financial freedom. But, uh, in this case, you know, basically your, your, uh, smallest debt first, um, you know, if you owe a subcontractor money, you owe a supplier money, you double, triple down and get them done first, then take, instead of, instead of piecemealing it out to a bunch of different people, put all your resources into one and get that cleared up, move on to the next one and just, just dig yourself out. Yeah. yeah. You take the payments that you were paying. Everybody gets a minimum, mm-hmm. but you take the payments on the one that you wiped out and you add that to the minimum for the second one. Correct. Get that wiped out. And I think one of the advantages of that is you actually see progress. Mm-hmm. You know, you accomplish something. We, uh, we don't actually run any credit accounts whatsoever. We are cash and carry with everything, uh, every bit of material mm-hmm. for our company. Uh, we never leave anything with credit. If we have subcontracted work, 
um, at minimum, the, those payments are made every Friday, whether we've received a payment from the customer or homeowner or not. Uh, it's just how, how we do it. But it also builds really good relationships for us uh, with the subcontractors yeah. that we do use. Absolutely. I mean, they're ecstatic if you're paying them on time because mm -hmm. <laughs> they're so used to having to wait and just carrying receivables and letting their uh, their GCs they're, they're financing their JCs essentially. Exactly. Um, so it's, it, that's really special and you can get the best workers that way. Talking about workers, let's pivot into that a little bit. What has the labor issue or labor in general for your industry been like, uh, you know, since COVID like, so 2020, what did you start to see as the pandemic increased and then where are we at today? Well, there certainly was a period where it was difficult to find anyone to do work. If you had someone that could do work, uh, you were lucky. I think mm. that has changed here just within the last uh, few months. It went from a, you know, a year or two ago, calling around, trying to find people to do work, to now people actually calling and reaching out, saying, hey, would love to get on board with you. I would love to do some work for you. Um, but at the same time, in many cases, these are the people that I already spoke to a year or two ago. So, uh, um, you know, the loyalty is kind of a big thing for me. So the, the people that have stuck in there um, through the tough time certainly can't just uh, kick them aside now. Right. And uh, was it that the same for subs as well? Most definitely. Uh, are you, are you, how many different crews are you working with as far as like subs go? It really does vary on the scope of the project, to be honest. Gotcha. Okay, cool. And now, you know, you people are coming back and hiring or looking for jobs. You know, Martin, where, where are you seeing that with some of your clients? Is, it, is hiring still an issue uh, post-pandemic or is it getting better? No, it's definitely getting better in maybe a, an analogous kind of industry as I have home builders. And they were severely limited last year by the ability to get mechanical trades framers, you know, it was all, uh, we'll get to you when we can. And now they're actually getting calls. Um, it, just like Scott said, and it's loosening up. Yeah. Uh, there are still people looking for people. That, yeah. Uh, but the effort is going to be to match them up. Yeah. The, the jobs report came out, uh, 10 million open positions, 6 million applicants of available workers out there. So Really, you know, people are just kind of getting tossed around for the most part from job to job still, but they're, you know, it's a little bit better, but still there's a, there's a shortage of workers. I'm seeing with a lot of companies, especially on the sales side, that it's, it still hasn't turned over yet. They're still having trouble finding biz dev people, still having trouble finding people to do sales roles. But I think that's changing. A lot of these people that, you know, maybe in project management or business business development have been able to work remotely for a lot of companies, but there's a ton of layoffs happening in tech and a lot of what, what a lot of these companies in tech are doing before they do the layoffs is they're changing their remote work policy and having people return to office so that people will just quit <laughs> so they don't have to give them the, the, uh, the compensation package. Paycom just did that recently, Oklahoma city. And, um, you know, there was a huge fit thrown about it. And then they started seeing these layoffs happen at all the different tech companies, Google, pay, uh, PayPal, 
uh, GoDaddy, JP Morgan, Facebook, whatever it is. And uh, yeah, now they're being quiet about the return to office policy. So I think it's a really interesting time. I think if you're looking for some of these more in-office roles that it's, it's going to start to turn over for you, especially with the small business atmosphere, you're going to be able to find a little bit more employees. But it was hard there for a bit. Did you have a huge wage increase, Scott? Did you have to start like offering a lot more money to be able to get talent? I would say that um, for the general labor, yes. I think uh, skilled labor was already uh, well paid. Yeah. And so I think it's, I think there was a more of an increase in general labor than there was in skilled labor. Yeah, I think, I think it's increasing uh, still increasing a bit, but it's kind of leveling off fairly bit now. So that's good. Um, interesting. Well, as far as like materials go, I know supply chain was a big issue for a lot of pool companies with parts coming from China for pumps and all sorts of stuff. How is that affecting you? Uh, it's the uh, supply chain now is fine. There was definitely an issue uh, previously, you know, there was a there was a fire at a chemical plant, uh, which produced one of the main components that is in uh, PVC. Um, so that made the cost of PVC go up. Um, it's come down a little, a little bit. In fact, I should probably check in with my supplier and see, see if it has indeed come down. Um, <laughs> but a fuel is a big thing. Fuel has affected the cost of everything from um, hauling off dirt from jobs, bringing in gravel, uh, freight. I mean, it's, it's a surprisingly large number. You know, that component for PVC, I believe was chlorine. That's a polyvinyl chloride. And that's also affected the price of chlorine that goes into pools. Right? Exactly. I was, had a uh, conversation with a client in Texas yesterday, and he was complaining that a bucket of chlorine, I mean, it's shock or something like that was like $800. Yeah for 150 pounds. Wow. And he said it ought to be, you know, a few years ago it was 200, mm -hmm. something like that. So, yeah, shortages still happen, but that's a fire, not a, not a COVID. True. Deal. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the end product price has certainly gone up. Uh, and I know that you had mentioned that demand, you know, drove the price, not so much uh, for us. I mean, our, our margins are still the same, but the costs are absolutely up. I mean, I can, pull up a list of email on my phone where all the titles are notice of price increase, weekly notice price increase. I mean, it's just every week still. Oh yeah. And you, okay. and how are you doing that? Are you, you're, you're just passing it right onto the customer. No. Uh, in fact, this is a little, a lot of prices were changing so quickly that, um, a lot of builders put a, a cost, a price escalation clause in their contract. And this was tied to some market indices. I don't follow it particularly, but uh, I'm sure that's legitimate, but it was just not how we chose to do it. We chose to, to give a price that, that we were comfortable with and whatever shakes out from there, that that's on us. And are you just, are, and that's just job to job though. So you you still are technically increasing your prices, but not in the middle of a project. Correct. Correct. Right. So you, you would increase your prices if you just got a new job tomorrow. It'd yeah. be more expensive than the one six months ago yeah. because of the price increases. How long is it taking you to finish a pool? 
typically. I mean, obviously, weather is huge yeah. on that. But <laughs> yeah, you really stuck me on the spot there with the weather this week. Um, <laughs> you know, typically a, ba- and, a basic pool, if it's fiberglass, uh, from start to finish, three to five weeks. Um, you, okay, uh, I think that's that's pretty fair. Oh wow. Okay. So, and with that, you're able to, you know, because the concrete pool's longer than that. Is that right? Much longer. Yeah. So on the fiberglass, it's a little bit easier for you to justify not increasing the prices, you know, because it's, it's still within like a month almost. Right. So, you, you know, you're able to not have to pass that on to the customer within as long as you do your budgeting properly. That makes more sense. Uh, you'd probably, you may, may be a little bit different if you're on the concrete side mm-hmm. where it might take you four months. You, you might have a huge issue. Well, we had one that we, uh, a gunite build that we did and, you know, we do the do the diagrams of specs and, you know, send it to the gunite company and they give their price back. And, you know, a few weeks later, then the contract signed and, you know, then the process starts permitting, you know, another few weeks goes by. And by the time that work was actually done, uh, it was like 40% more. And, and at that point, you know, you don't go, you, I'm that big of a bill. You do not go back to the homeowner and say, oh, hey, by the way, I, I need more money. You just just suck it up and get it done. Man. Yeah. That's so you didn't have a price escalation uh, protection from your supply. Right. <laughs> oh, they, they did credit me the uh, fuel surcharge, so. Good. Oh, man. That's rough. I know, a, I know a pool builder that's just doing straight cost plus. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how he's getting around it. Yeah. Rather than having to do this price escalation all the time, it's like, nope, here you go. There's the price. Yeah. So crazy. Well, what's in store? This year, you, 2022, you said was your best year yet. Best. What are you forecasting for 2023, even better than 2022? Uh, I believe so. But yeah. <laughs> well, good uh, stuff. We're, we have, uh, you know, under contract uh, already a, significant portion of what we did for 22 all you know already for this year so how far are you scheduled out uh may june may mm-hmm. june well that's nice but we that's really nice. it's a little misleading uh because you know we we work quickly i mean any day that the ground is workable we'll be working i know that i went to a, a conference a few years ago and uh there were lots of other pool builders there and one guy had said to me oh we're you know, we're booked out over a year. And I was like, wow, you know, it's, it's booked out over a year already. Um, and so I didn't feel that good about myself. But then later on in the conversation, I learned that they're booked out for a year as 12 pools. So, you know, uh, it depends on what you consider your capacity to be. Well, cool. Well, Scott, I've, we've really appreciated having you on and just sharing a little bit about part, your partnership, uh, walking through that learning that the only ship that doesn't sail is a partnership and uh, just getting to talk through a little bit about, you know, how you run your processes, how you have a vision for your company, how you do things a little bit different and, uh, you know, keep things focused on the Dave Ramsey approach to business and not owing anybody money, but just being honest with who you are and where you're at. Um, I love that. And then also sharing just about the pool industry as a whole. It's been fascinating and cool to see where it's at. Would love to have you on in the future to hear how things are changing. And yeah, appreciate your time, Scott. 
Martin, anything else that you got? Uh, I might ask Scott to do this, assuming that they're not direct competitors of your, what's one piece of advice you'd give somebody new to the pool business? Do not take a sales course. <laughs> Why is that? I say people are tired of being sold to. You know, you go right. everywhere you turn, you are being sold to. Um, you know, I'm personally, I'm a reader. You know, I don't sit down and read novels, but little bits, articles, technical things. I mean, I soak them up because I want to learn. And when people are starting down this pool purchase process, they don't need to be sold to. They need to be to be educated. That's what they want. They want information. They don't need the right. sales. Yeah. Really good. wisdom in that. Yeah. Always, always good wisdom in that. Educate your buyers for sure. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for being on the Cashflow Contractor. And uh, yeah, we'll have you on again soon. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Scott. Thanks for listening to the Cashflow Contractor. Check out our website in the show notes or visit thecashflowcontractor.com.